This is the Kevin Simpson Show, expert insight and analysis from the industry's top investment professionals. If you'd like a deeper understanding of today's markets, this is the show for you. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Kevin Simpson Show. Joining us today are two people that need absolutely no introduction, Dan Nathan and Guy Adami. Dan and Guy are friends of mine who are co-hosts of On the Tape, an amazing weekly podcast I encourage you all to check out. Uh, I'm sure you guys can tell us where to find it. And for anyone who happens to watch CNBC, you may be able to catch them pretty much every single day as uh, stalwarts of Fast Money, one of my favorite shows on the network. So guys, Damn thank you straight. What is up, Kevin? How you into doing, our- man? What's going on? I'm fired up. I know I don't speak for Dan, but I'll speak for Dan. We're excited to be here. Thanks for having us. We also have my co-host, my esteemed co-host, Jay Coulter, who's always here to kind of keep us on track. Jay, looks like you shaved your mustache today. I'd say you look 10 years younger. Fantastic. Well, I, I, I'll, I'll jump in first then with the first question, Jay, then I'll turn it over to you. And I think mostly because of equity volatility that we're seeing. I mean, it seems like every single day markets are up, down or sideways. As you guys know, this show caters to the financial advisors. And I'm wondering if you have any advice for financial advisors as far as how should they be positioning themselves in today's market? Dan, why don't we start with you? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, over the last, let's call it 10 years, other than a, a few short, very uh, volatile periods, you know, the, the slow and steady has won the race, right? And, and it's been a bottom left to an upper right, at least as it relates to equities. And I think you could say the same thing for bonds and, and do the opposite for yields, right? So a traditional portfolio, you know, I have a friend of mine at a big wirehouse. He just says spoos and twos, spoos and twos. You buy the spoos and you buy the twos. And, and he's been saying that to me for 10 years and it's really worked. And I think one of the most fascinating things is that, you know, in the, in, you you know, as pundits, as market participants, we all talk about these things that are right in front of us or those things that we can't really see, that black swan event. Well, we had one, right? And it came in the form of this pandemic and the market did crash in a very short period of time. I think it was the, the quickest 35% peak to trough decline, but it only lasted a few months. You know what I mean? So if you panicked and you did the wrong thing, you know, you know what I mean? You were kind of, you made some mistakes that are going to take years um, to correct in a way. So I guess, you know, slow and steady continues to win the race guy will probably weigh in on why that works why that we don't have this kind of darwinian sort of setup as it relates to markets he's been doing this for decades and decades haven't and you have some thoughts on why you just have to btfd as the kids say well i don't even know what the btfd means kevin but i will tell you see he's getting me to he wants me to rage against the machine the machine in this case would be our federal reserve i'm not going to do that because you know what it's boring at this point and i don't want to hear myself chat but what i will say this to the audience is you have to ask yourself are we on the precipice of a sea change in other words are we going from one side of the equation which is to be in growth uh is, is that baton being passed over and is it because of rates going higher I would submit, yes, I think rates are going meaningfully higher from here. I've said for a while, I think we'll see 2% in the 10-year by the end of the year. And I think the question is that you have to ask yourself, what works in that environment? I will continue to say, I think banks, cyclicals, resource names will work. And quite frankly, these growth names that have been stalwarts for the last decade, I think you're starting to see, um, you see some vulnerabilities there now. And it's manifesting itself in a number of different ways. Obviously, Facebook is Facebook-specific. But it's more than just Facebook. So I think we're on the precipice of something. But that's the question that you have to ask yourself as advisors. 
Yeah. So listen, I really appreciate the way you guys have opinions. You stick to them and you guys are able to articulate it really well. You talked about the 10 year getting up to 2% last week on your show, guy. That has some real implications for financial advisors when they're looking at their fixed income allocations. But what do they need to start thinking about? Well, they have to ask themselves, you know, I think we've been lulled into this sense that rates are never going meaningfully higher and that the Fed will do everything they can to hold rates down. And that's been the case now for the better part of a decade. But I think, again, I think we're on the precipice of something changing here. We, Dan and I were doing a podcast earlier today. We looked at the CRB index. I encourage your audience just to take a look at that chart over the last year. And I think you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Inflation is here in spades. And at a certain point, the 10-year yield is going to uh, catch up to where things are. So what does that mean for advisors? Well, uh, again, you've been able to do this now for a reasonable period of time. I think the world is changing. I'm not suggesting the market's going to collapse or anything like that, but I do think some of the underlying components of the market are going to change in a meaningful way. Well, Dan, on that same show last week, you talked about the 200-day moving average potentially being tested here as we get through the rest of this quarter. Again, getting back to the real applications of, again, the typical advisor portfolio, call it yeah. a 60-40, rates are going up. If we're testing the 200-day, there could be panic heading into the end of the year at a time where we don't have any clarity on taxes yet. What do advisors yeah. need to be thinking of? Yeah, I think your point about clarity is a, is a good one. You know, obviously, investors don't like uncertainty, and there seems to be a lot of it right now. And a lot of these things are kind of own goals. If you look down to Washington, you look at some of the, you know, the debt ceiling thing or the, the infrastructure bill or some of this other stuff. It just doesn't seem to be like these have to be market moving events. But for some reason, investors have to kind of pay attention to them right now. I think the most important point about that is that you talk about equity markets and the 200-day moving average, I mean, we just haven't even sniffed them in the S&P 500 in, in well over a year. And what that says to me is just unusually frothy sort of sentiment as it relates to equities. And maybe that's for a whole host of reasons that we've talked about so far and that we may discuss here. The just level of complacency is very high. I think that investors have been conditioned to the fact that if the stock market goes down, that the Fed is going to have their back. And so why do I look at the 200-day moving average? The S&P 500, we topped out at 45.54 a few weeks ago. Uh, it's down there at 41.5. You do the math. Even Guy Adani can do that math. It's about a 10% peak to drop. Wait, what? 10% peak to drop decline. And we haven't had one of those in 18 months or 19 months. I think it's the longest stretch in, in, in decades maybe that we haven't had one. So what I think is most healthy for investors who continue to just kind of layer into their investing and not try to market time is to have those opportunities to reevaluate what you own, how you're, how you're positioned, how you're allocated. And we haven't had that. And that's my only point. And that's why I think that's the healthiest thing. If you're one of those strategists who have a 4,600 year end target in the S&P 500, I don't think we get there from going up 20% to there in a straight line. I think we need to have, you know, kind of one step forward, two steps back. You know, Dan, when Kevin and I were prepping for this show, there was a line from your most recent episode of the macro setup that stood out to us. And you said, I want to get this right. The ground may have shifted below investors' feet. Maybe the easy money has been made. What do you mean by that? What do we need to be watching? Well, I think Guy just kind of 
you know, hinted to that. If, if rates are going to go higher after an unusually long period of accommodation, right? And then we also know going back to Q4 of 2018, when, you know, the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield got above 3%. What did the, what did the stock market do, uh, Guy Adami? How much did it go down? I think from October of 2018 until Christmas Eve of that year, the U.S. stock market in the form of the S&P 500 went down 19.9%, Dan. Yeah, yeah. So almost 20%. Almost as some would call a crash, right? And so we know that the Fed just can't have that negative wealth effect. I guess that that's kind of their focus there. So what do they do? They do an about face, right? And so they started lowering interest rates, and the stock market started taking off again. So I guess the point that I would make is that if you're going to have rates higher, going to have dollar higher, going to have commodities higher. That is a different investment regime than what we've been used to. And I think Guy has been talking about this notion of stagflation. He remembers it as a young man very well back in the 70s. It's not a great backdrop for investing as we've come to know it over the last couple uh, decades here. Age jokes notwithstanding, yes, I do remember those days, fellas. JC, please continue. (laughs) In that same interview, Guy, you talked about triple-digit oil and the implications there, and you were also talking about the Russell 2000 speaking to stagflation. Walk us through how we should think about that as advisors. Let's start with the Russell first, the IWM. Obviously, if you look at it, if you just overlay a chart with the uh, 10-year yields, it topped out. The IWM topped out in March when yields traded up to 175, I guess, in the 10-year. And since that point, we've basically gone sideways in a very well-defined range. And the point that I've been making is the Russell's trying to figure out why rates are going higher. Rates going higher because the economy is, in fact, growing and doing better or rates going higher because prices are out of control. And that's what the IWM is struggling with now. I think that will be your tell as to where the growth is. And in fact, if we have growth, if you see the Russell break out to the upside, then maybe rates are going up for the wrong reason. If you see rates continue to go higher and the Russell lag, that is a huge tell. In terms of oil, listen, everybody was on that side of the boat over the summer. I was one of those people that thought oil was going to explode to the upside. And we stopped in crude almost to the penny, maybe to the penny, on a 13-year downtrend line. And we sold off pretty precipitously in June and July. Well, oil's got its footing back. And I think we're through that line now. And I think a lot of people have probably exited that trade are trying to get back in. And I think oil's going to be the story for not only the back half of this year, but early next year. Not only crude oil, but look what's going on in natural gas. And then just if you just start to connect the dots, Look what's going on in a lot of these industrial metals and base metals. There are a lot of things happening under the surface that until recently, at least, the 10-year yield is not taking into consideration. Guy, how do you think dividend-paying stocks of large corporations will do during a period of elongated stagflation? Well, people will find them, obviously. I mean, they will run to names that they think uh, provide them with a level of certainty in the form of dividends and stuff. And I get it. And I know this is a conversation for advisors, but just, you know, I put my trader's hat on. And to me, um, dividend paying stocks, it's sort of just the cherry on top. I mean, we've seen it hundreds of times over the years that you can lose the dividend you're going to make in a year and over the course of a day. For for example, you know, an AT&T is paying you five and a half percent dividend. Well, you get a 5.5% move to the downside, you wash that out, and we start from scratch. So, yes, I get it. I think people will flock to those names, but they are not panaceas by any stretch of the imagination, my opinion. You know, I like the idea of buying 
stocks of companies that I think are going to appreciate for their own reasons and then maybe use a covered call writing strategy to kind of create a dividend on something that you think is going to go higher and you manage that more actively. And I know that's not something that a ton of advisors do, but at the end of the day, that's a great strategy rather than buying bad companies for good dividends, if that makes sense. You know, we call that, Dan, we call that in the business a synthetic dividend. And I agree with you. I'm jumping in here, but that's that is an asset class on you know in and of itself creating a synthetic dividend for yourself in the form of selling upside calls now when the vix is in mid teens maybe you're not getting paid enough but now as you have the vix approaching 22 23 maybe that strategy makes a little more sense so i love what you're doing there dan nathan so dan let's talk about bitcoin so we don't issue opinions at Capital Wealth Planning about Bitcoin. In prepping for the show, Kevin, I can see you're a big advocate for the space. Today, as we're recording this, Bitcoin is back up over 50000 How should advisors who are skeptical of the space start to look at this as an asset class, as a potential inflation hedge? Yeah, that's a great question. And I mean, just so you know, I started out as kind of a, a skeptic, and then I've gone kind of back and forth because, you know, really... Um, you know, I have not gone deep down the rabbit hole of, you know, uh, of cryptography. I'm certainly not, um, you know, one of these, um, you know, brilliant economic thinkers by any means. I'm just a dumb trader of stocks and options and that sort of thing. But I do find it intellectually very interesting. And what I find most interesting about the space is that some of the smartest people that I know in finance, in tech, are all in on this. And I've just been doing this for 25 years now. And I started in the late 90s. And I remember the skepticism around e-commerce, around the internet, around a lot of related, sort of the internet's ability to transform industries. And when I look around and I see some of the biggest advocates for crypto in general, not just the currencies. And I think Bitcoin has a bit of a branding problem. I don't think it should be called a cryptocurrency. I don't know about you guys. I don't know anybody who owns Bitcoin who uses it as a, as a currency. I think they use it as a store of value, a better store of value than maybe gold. And a lot of advisors who are listening to this have probably allocated maybe low single digits percentage of portfolios to gold for a very long time. And I just don't know why anybody would continue to do that unless you thought that Bitcoin or related cryptos that are viewed as a store of value are a total scam. And I just don't think that you can have a two trillion plus asset class that's been around this long. That's a scam. And then the sort of money that's being allocated to it and the sort of brain power that's focused on it and the sort of protocols that are being built in and around it. So that's my quick take. Now, am I all in on crypto? Do I own it? I own some. And I will own some and I'll always own some unless there's something that comes from a regulatory standpoint that makes it look less interesting to me. But right now, I think there's a ton of innovation going on around the space. Um, I don't think it's a currency. I think some of the stuff that was deemed to be smart contracts like Ethereum and Solana and some of these things, they're acting more like currencies than actually um, you know, a store of value, if you will, because a lot of the protocols... Uh, that are being built on them, whether it be DeFi or, or NFTs and that sort of thing, are using the actually underlying to transact and to, kind of, you know what I mean? So to me, I think it's really interesting. I, I would say to any advisor who's listening to this right now is that if you're looking for that next thing, and I know you guys are always looking in gals, looking for good ideas and stuff that's it. Start thinking about it because in two or three years, if you wake up and the whole space has passed you by and it's now a $20 trillion asset class or a $30 trillion global asset class, you're going to be scratching your head thinking, why didn't I look at that next thing that might have been the Internet and the way it's kind of making its way through almost every industry globally? Yeah. Guy, what are your thoughts on the space? 
I'm not nearly as well-versed as Dan. Brian Kelly literally wrote the book on it, and I've tried to get myself up to speed. But my thoughts on the space are pretty much what Dan said. You know, you're talking about now a $2 trillion market cap industry, for lack of a better word. I mean, there's got to be – this is not – let's put it this way. When the Internet started, there were a lot of companies that went by the wayside, but the Internet is still here. And I think that's what's going to – 20 years from now, that's the way they'll be talking about cryptocurrencies. I can't speak to which ones will survive. But there will be survivors and it will still be around, you know, two decades from now. What do I think of the space? Well, I've talked to Michael Saylor, the CEO and founder of MicroStrategies, a number of times. And he thinks, quite frankly, that the market cap at $2 trillion is probably going to be north of $50 trillion at some point, some multiple of where gold is now, gold probably being about a $10 trillion or so market cap. So you can do the math on the back of it. There'll absolutely be fits and starts along the way. We've obviously seen that a number of times over the last six months. But- you know, a lot of people a lot smarter than I am think this thing is headed significantly higher uh, and it's going to be a meaningful industry or meaningful, uh, I guess, tool for the way of life over the next couple of decades. Yeah, Kevin, when we started doing this show, we debated whether to put the cryptocurrency questions into the question set. We've asked every guest. We've had crypto experts on. Has your opinion changed now that we're on episode 12? Well, you know, I'm just so disappointed that we've brought math into the equation. You know, one of the other things that we talked about is that there'd be no math on this show. So I apologize to both of you for Jay introducing that concept. But uh, I, I really learned a lot from Dan's answer. I mean, we've had incredibly gifted crypto experts on here and so much of it just shoots over my head. The, um, you know, the idea of it being here, the idea of us paying attention to it is, is absolutely you know, consistent with how we're thinking about it. It's, it's not in my world from an investment standpoint, but I think you'd be naive to not pay attention to it. And I think like anything else, it's, it's information that's valuable in portfolio construction. So I, I learned a lot from both of your answers. Thank you. So Guy, you're a director at the Private Advisor Group, the largest LPL OSJ in the country. They serve over 600 advisors. You get to speak with advisors every day. What are they missing? What are they not paying attention to that they need to focus in on before the end of the year? I don't think they're missing necessarily anything. I mean, what I've learned about advisors is they take their jobs extraordinarily seriously and they put their customers and their clients first. And they're always looking out and they're thinking on behalf of those uh, individuals that they represent. So I don't think they're missing anything. I think at a certain point, we all get into, we lull ourselves in a false sense of security thinking that, you know what, the market may go down for a day or two, but it's never going to go down in a meaningful way. So I think something they should be thinking about is, you know, what's out there that I'm not thinking about? You know, what are the some of the pitfalls that could potentially be out there? I happen to think situation in China right now is one that we talk about, but we don't talk about nearly enough. Uh, if you look at what the Chinese have done over the last year, it's pretty clear that they're playing the long game here. They're willing to lose battles along the way to win the war. And the question you have to ask yourself is, you know, what how does that manifest itself here now? Quite frankly, nothing has happened in our equity market at all. But below the surface, obviously, there have been some names that have been under pressure. And to think that uh, the Chinese are done in this foray, I think it's foolish. I think they've only just beginning. So one of the things as an advisor that I would be concerned about is what's the end game with China and what does that mean for our markets here? Final question for all three of you. Looking for year-end price targets. We're recording this the first week in October. Guy, what are your thoughts? 
You're on price targets. Well, by the end of the year, I'll be 58 years old, if that helps, 57 now. So that's price target one. Let's, you know, I, I'll, I'll play your reindeer game because I know that's what you're tasked to do. And I've said this on the show, and I learned from a guy named Pete Gerhard, total badass, by the way, at Jay Aaron. Uh, he was one of the guys that really started uh, doing binary options and knockout options in a meaningful way. So if you're asking me to gauge, I do think we're going to see 4,100 in the S&P 500 over the next few weeks, month or so. And I think we will close the year north of 4,500 in the S&P. How's that? Like Dan, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm kind of in guy's camp. I think that we have to have that kind of 10% peak to trough decline. I think that, you know, the further we go down, I think the scarier it gets. And we haven't had that sort of uh, kind of nail-biting sell-off since last fall. When I guess it was last September and pre-election in October. But if you think about what's gone on in the year since then with the vaccine rollout here and globally and just a lot more clarity about, you know, the, the longer we get away from that is the closer we are to the end of the pandemic. And then ultimately, we should have this sort of inflection in the economy and the market should discount that ahead of time. So I'd love to see a really scary sell-off, get the guys 4150 or so in the S&P 500, that 200-day moving average. And I do suspect there'll be buyers there. So to me, I don't see things getting really nasty and falling apart. Maybe we don't make a new high um, by the end of the year. Um, I think that would set up pretty nicely for 2022 if we kind of had that fear trade in Q4 or late, um, you know, and then kind of moved out or set up for a new high in early next year. So I'm probably more in the 4,400 camp, the S&P 500. How about you, Kevin? Well, I'm not in the business of making short-term calls. I would see 4,400 at the year end as a very viable uh, S&P number if you put a gun to my head. Seeing the markets get down to 4,100 in the interim would be you know, a blessing for me in terms of the volatility that would take place. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering if the big names can make that happen. You know, Half of the S&P 500 names have already had a 10% plus pullback. I think half of the NASDAQ names have probably had a 20% pullback, maybe even more than that. So seeing the big names come down and show some weakness to get to that 41, 4150 that Guy's talking about would be great. Uh, even if we don't get there and we end up at 4,400, what a year it's been. I mean, who would have expected it after 2020? So uh, short of a major sell-off, which I'm not expecting, we should have a, um, a decent end to the year. And then you start to get nervous because tapering will begin. Uh, higher interest rates will follow. And if you're thinking about 2022 and into 2023, 2023 is going to look a lot scarier than 2021. So stay tuned to On the Tape podcast once a week and the Kevin Simpson show whenever we get around to it. Great way to wrap up. Dan, Guy, appreciate you guys coming on the Kevin Simpson Show. Thanks a lot, guys. It was our Later, pleasure. dudes. Thanks. Thank you. This message does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to purchase securities through CWP Advisory Services. Investments are not guaranteed and involves risk of loss. The views and opinions expressed in this message are those of investment professionals made at the time this content was recorded, are not necessarily the views and opinions of CWP, and may change in time without notification. For additional information about CWP, visit CWP's or the SEC's website for a copy of our ADV disclosure brochure and form CRS.